You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hello, normal people. Welcome to this episode of The Bible for Normal People podcast. Our topic today is womanist biblical interpretation, and our guest is Dr. Nisha Jr., who is assistant professor of Hebrew Bible slash Old Testament at Temple University. And she she writes, obviously teaches, speaks, and she tweets a lot. She loves Twitter um, on the topics of race and gender, religion, and their intersections. And she has a wonderful book out called An Introduction to Womanist Biblical Interpretation. And uh, it's wonderful to have somebody here who is an expert in a topic that... Jared, uh, a lot of us just don't know anything about. Yeah. I know I don't. Yeah, I, I appreciated just getting educated on on this topic. Um, and I, I actually appreciated, as we were talking to her, I, I felt like um, she did a good job of, of nuancing what she was trying to say and making mm-hmm. sure that we weren't overgeneralizing or oversimplifying mm-hmm. what is, I think, a complicated area. Which is an easy thing to do is to oversimplify things you don't understand, and that doesn't work that way. Life is complicated. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as, as we both went to seminaries that we learned a lot at but uh, was still um, entirely male Eurocentric in its approach. There are just things that we have never had to think about in an academic sense. And I feel, and I'm happy to say we're playing catch up at our age and things that are just out there that actually affect real people. And, and so that's, that's one of the things, you know, we want to do here at the Bible for normal people is, is to bring the breadth of how people think about scripture and faith and theology into just where people are and 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 to to help and to educate and to to i think enlighten is not a bad word um that this world is a big place and god is bigger still and we're just trying to figure all this stuff out together yeah and i I think we both learned a lot and uh, we hope you do as well okay let's go with the interview so if someone says i'm doing a womanist approach some of the things that you might expect would be some sort of critique of feminism, some sort of emphasis on intersections of oppression. And then third is probably some emphasis on the lived experiences of African-American women. So what are African-American women specifically going through? Introducing Bluehost Cloud ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. 
Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I, I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Well, welcome to the podcast, Nisha. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. So, right down the street at Temple. Yes, in Philadelphia. Yeah. Yeah, we're, cool. we're sitting probably, uh, I don't know, what, 20 miles away at yeah. this point? Yeah, so, and I work not 20 miles away. Yeah. I'm closer than that, so that's, that's pretty cool. Well, it's very good to have you on. And, and uh, you know, today we're talking about womanist biblical interpretation. And a lot of our listeners will get there are asking, what is womanist biblical interpretation? It's probably a, a new idea and a concept for them. But, but before we do that, maybe, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. But talk about, too, why you are passionate about this, how you connected to it. How did you get introduced and decide to stick with it and become a scholar and an expert in this area? Sure. Well, my first passion was just biblical studies. Um, I wanted to learn more about the Bible, and that's why I started my MDiv program. And my first semester, I had uh, intro to Hebrew Bible with Jeffrey Kwan, and it just totally blew my mind. Um, and I went to him and I said, I would like to have your job. <laughs> <laughs> we all love students like that. <laughs> just, I mean, I really, I, I knew I didn't really want to be a pastor or do sort of traditional ministry. What blew your mind? I mean, just you got me there. What what was it that just made you say, oh, my goodness gracious, I need to do this? I just, I couldn't believe that that was his job to <laughs> read the Bible and study the Bible and teach people about the Bible. And um, I, I thought it was fantastic that he could translate texts himself. I just thought that is amazing. And that has got to be so much better than being a regular pastor on Sunday preaching sermons. Did you grow up in a Christian home or were you a convert? I, did. Okay. Uh, I grew up, I'm fourth generation AME. Uh, mm -hmm. AME is the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Right. It's um, one of the major black Protestant denominations. Um, so my family, um, we all, for us, church was work. I, I don't know how many people still do that. So church for us was not um, basketball leagues and golf tournaments or whatever else people do these days. Um, church was work as in um, you have to go to church on Saturday in order to cut the grass and um, vacuum the carpets and you stay late on Sundays in order to prepare food. Um, my cousins and I sang in the choir. My uncles, usually it was just the men until later on. Uh, my uncles were in the pulpit as uh, ministers. 
it was a family affair. So there were three or four large families um, that made up the congregation. Mm-hmm. So with that background, uh, when I finally decided I wanted to do my MDiv, um, I wasn't sure what I was doing in the MDiv program, which is not what I recommend to my own students. But I really wasn't sure, and I was a seeker, and I, I just thought, you get to study the Bible as your whole job. I've got to do this. <laughs> and to his credit, he didn't laugh at me or uh, kick me out of his office. He just very calmly explained um, that I would need to take Hebrew and I need to take Greek and I need to go to SBL and um, that he was going to run my life for the next three years. <laughs> and I said, I will do whatever it takes. So that's, how I ended up in a doctoral program in biblical studies and became a biblical scholar. And that was at Princeton Seminary, right? Your PhD? Yes, at Princeton okay. Seminary. Nice. Okay. And, then, and then maybe walk us through to this idea of womanist biblical interpretation. So you get your PhD and then and how, did, how did this come up? And, and maybe give us a definition too. Sure. So I um, finished at Princeton Seminary and I did not want to think at all about my dissertation. Um, most academics, usually their first book is based on their dissertation, like a heavily revised version of their dissertation. And I could not stomach the thought of going back to it. And I thought about what is it that I really wanted to do? What, what was your dissertation on? Oh, my dissertation was on Genesis 39, Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Okay. But I was just tired of it. Tired I, of it, sure you were. what I had to say. Let's move on. Yeah. Um, so I thought about what, what was exciting to me. What did I really want to write about? What was I interested in? What did I think would be a contribution? And one of the things that kept coming up for me was that people kept assuming that I was a womanist and that I must be doing womanist biblical interpretation And so, really, the book came out of wanting to provide some resources um, for people and some definitions and talk about how womanist approaches have developed within biblical studies. So, the book really was more um, my own curiosity about how it had developed and also wanting to share information because I felt like people really didn't know what this was. And this is your book, An Introduction to Womanist Biblical Interpretation, right? Yes, okay. uh, An Introduction to Womanist Biblical Interpretation. It was published in 2015 with Westminster John Knox. Okay, great. Yeah, so maybe tell us what, what is Womanist Biblical Interpretation? Okay, so uh, it does take the whole book to explain, but in brief... <laughs> Um, let's start with what is, uh, how do we define womanist? Let's start there, um, because that tends to be where most people are coming from. So the term womanist comes from Alice Walker. Um, people may know her as the um, writer of The Color Purple. That's probably one of her most popular works. And in her collection of essays in In Search of Our Mother's Garden's Womanist Prose, she defines this term womanist. And she gives a long four-part creative definition that talks about 
this term within African-American culture. Um, most people have probably never read the whole definition, but it usually is condensed down to a womanist is a black feminist or feminist of color. So Walker has a lengthy definition, but usually the definition is reduced down to a couple of phrases. One is a black feminist or feminist of color. And then you probably maybe on t-shirts or bumper stickers have seen the second, which is womanist is to feminist as purple to lavender. Okay, wait a minute. Something, a light bulb just fell off my head. Is okay. that what the title means, the color purple? Uh, the color purple is related to um, the mention of purple within the novel. Okay. But um, because Walker wrote the color purple, I think this also gets associated. Okay. Mm -hmm. But she's not talking about the color purple. She's not talking. Okay. They're, they're essentially unrelated. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so... In Walker's definition, she mentions feminist, as in womanist as a black feminist or feminist of color, but she doesn't offer her own specific definition of feminist. What happens over time is that some black women begin to identify themselves as womanist. Um, not every black woman does so. So that's one major thing. Mm. Um, but Related to that, for some black women to identify as womanist or black feminist is important to them because they don't feel that feminism is concerned with the issues related to both race and gender, and that feminism focuses primarily on gender and usually on white women and usually white affluent women. Hmm. So some black women begin to use this term and some scholars also begin to construct what they are calling a womanist approach. And this happens within different fields. Specifically, uh, womanist approaches are different depending on the field and depending on the scholar who's using it. So remember that Walker's a writer. Um, so she's not offering like a philosophical treatise on womanism. Um, and also this is in the front matter of her book. It's not even one of the essays in In Search of Our Mother's Gardens. So the definition is very intricate and poetic. And that leaves a lot of room for people to select the elements of Walker's definition that they want to engage Related to that, there are probably three things that you see most frequently. So if someone says, I'm doing a womanist approach, some of the things that you might expect would be some sort of critique of feminism, some sort of emphasis on intersections of oppression. So how do racism, sexism, classism interact? And then third is probably some emphasis on the lived experiences of African-American women. So what are African-American women specifically going through? So different scholars and different disciplines have used some elements of these approaches within their work and are identifying their work as womanist. Well, that's 
a great starting place for this definition of, of womanist. Maybe say more about uh, how that intersects with the Bible. And, you know, while we, I think somewhere I read, I love this phrase that while womanist biblical interpretation is relatively new in the development of academic biblical studies, so it's not a category of biblical studies, it's pretty, it's pretty new. The idea, of course, is that African-American women aren't newcomers to interpreting the Bible, that this has been, uh, ever since there have been black women reading the Bible, we've had interpretations of the Bible by black women. And maybe, can you give us a little of the history of that? What were some influential uh, thinkers on the Bible early on that would have been, you know, yeah. black women who are thinking about it, particularly through their lens, this lived experience? Good question. So the thing is, it gets complicated which is why I had to write a whole book about it. So there are early black women who are reading the Bible and are concerned about issues of both race and gender. They would not have used the word womanist and would also not have identified as feminist. Um, what I do in the book is talk about how um, within feminist biblical interpretation, that feminist scholars have identified earlier thinkers and have made them part of their history. And similarly, that has happened with womanist biblical studies. So someone say like Jarena Lee, who's a 19th century black woman evangelist. And in her memoirs, she talks about um, not being ordained to preach and still feeling this call on her life and talking about um, how she's treated both as a woman who is preaching in the 19th century, which is not done, and also as a black woman. So someone like Jarena Lee um, would be an example of someone who is reading biblical texts with attention to race and gender, and someone that later scholars look at as sort of a forerunner of what we see later on in academic biblical studies. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. 
You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. So if I'm hearing you right, I hear you maybe saying, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I hear you saying that you're trying to, you want to make sure and resist the urge to label things, label people as things or put them in sort of ideological boxes that they wouldn't have been familiar with and that maybe seems unfair to do in this case and perhaps others where they're not trying to fit into this mold of womenist biblical interpretation in a way that maybe contemporary scholars can because that exists now. Um, and so we would just want to be fair to what they were doing and, and say it wasn't this. Um, it may have been a prototype, but it wasn't what we're doing right now. Is that fair to say? Yes, but I, I do think that it's important to acknowledge that while they may not have labeled it in that way, that they are making similar moves. Mm -hmm. So even if they would not have used those terms for themselves, that you can see how um, contemporary scholars could link their work back to earlier scholars who may not be traditional academics, but who are doing for their time exciting and creative engagement with text. So what, what are some of those moves? You know, you said they're doing some of the same moves. So as it relates to the Bible, what are some of those, what are some of the moves that we would expect um, someone who has certain, these critique of feminism, intersection of oppression, and, and talking about the lived experiences of African-American women, when it comes to the Bible, what are some of those moves that they might make? Um, for example, Jarena Lee um, talks about uh, Balaam's ass and talks about, um, you know, if, if God can make animals talk, then certainly God can use women to preach. Um, she is talking about her own experience as a black woman and, as I said, feeling called to ministry herself and feeling that her call and her experience of God is more important than her bishop or elders who are telling her that she cannot be ordained. So that kind of focus on her own experience, her own understanding of God, um, those types of things we see in later work. Um, part of what I wanted to do in this, in this book was to talk about where I do see these connections between academic biblical studies and also non-traditional 
um, work and work outside of biblical studies. So sometimes we get uh, stuck into our disciplinary silos. Mm-hmm. And only the people who are trained in this particular way um, count as scholars in this particular way, and they all go to these same SBL sessions. Mm-hmm. Can you explain what you mentioned SBL a few times? I'm not sure if our right. listeners would oh, know what that yes, is. Of course. Um, SBL is the Society of Biblical Literature, and it is the largest and oldest organization that is devoted to academic biblical studies. Um, if you know anybody in biblical studies, they probably go to the SBL annual meeting, which is held every year in November at different locations. And SBL is uh, co-located. They have the same annual meeting time with the American Academy of Religion, which is usually called AAR. And so there are people who are Bible people who are usually at SBL, and then people in broader religion or religious studies who are usually in AAR. It's pretty much a nerd fest, too. That's the way I define it. The sea of tweed, at least the men wearing tweed sport coats and smoking pipes and things like that. So, <laughs> what, oh. you going to, are you going to SBL in the 70s? Yeah, you know what? <laughs> pretty much in the 70s in a lot of ways, too. There, so. Yes, right. there, there are a lot of uh, white men in tweed, but um, <laughs> some of us are working to change that. Yes, please do. Let me know. Fashion and style quotients. I'm, I'm trying to change it, too, in my own little way, but I can only go so far, I guess. But... Um, Nisha, you mentioned something as you were describing the history of womanist biblical interpretation and and your own book that you've written in the context of that. It, it seems like, first of all, I think we're talking about maybe diverse approaches or diverse methodologies within something called womanist biblical interpretation. Is that correct? Yes, in that way, it's similar to what we see within feminist biblical interpretation, that there are different ways of approaching texts, and then there are sort of some uh, overarching perspectives or approaches that are related to that. So within within feminist biblical approaches, uh, we might see someone who is doing um, traditional historical criticism, but is layering that with a feminist approach. So perhaps they are focused on concerns of gender alongside that historical critical approach. Does that describe more or less where you're coming from as well? Are you, hybrid's the wrong word because that's already biasing discussion towards something that's supposedly normal and you're doing something abnormal, which is part of the problem in our thinking. But is that more or less what you're doing? Are, Are you intersecting let's say, the modern study of the Bible in an academic sense with womanist concerns? No. Okay. Yeah, let me know what you're doing. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Again, that's the book. I know. Sorry. (laughs) That's okay. That's okay. (laughs) So um, this, this comes up quite a bit as well. So first, I should say I don't myself identify as a womanist. And okay. secondly, the book is not a, um, the book is not particular texts that I am reading using womanist approaches. Okay. So uh, I have to tell people up front those 
I think sometimes people assume that an intro is going to be sort of like the women's Bible commentary right. or something like that. So it's an intro in the sense that I'm trying to offer um, a history of the development of womanist approaches within biblical interpretation and talk about some of the critical issues related to its potential future. But it's really more of an overview and my effort to lay out some of this territory. Hmm. So I'm not actually doing like this is a womanist approach to Ruth. Okay. That's not in the book. At least in my book, there are other scholars who are doing some of that work. Yeah, and maybe within that history, and again, if we're if uh, if I'm barking up the right, the wrong tree, you you can tell me for sure. But like uh, I'm thinking of Dolores Williams and some of the work that she did uh, around certain biblical. I'm thinking of Hagar, and uh, and her kind of rereading of that, or her reading of that again to uh, not make it derivative. Her reading and how. Um, she uses her experience and her thoughts on oppression, particularly as a, as a person of color, a, a black woman. And are there other examples, are there characters of the Bible that tend to be standouts in womanist biblical interpretation that you've noticed as you've kind of looked through the history of this and looked toward the future um, of, of womanist biblical interpretation? Are there biblical characters that stand out that tend to be favored in these kind of uh, interpretations? Short answer is no. Okay. The longer answer is that um, one of the things that I do have to point out is that although there are parallels between feminist approaches within biblical studies and womanist approaches within biblical studies, we don't have the same body of work. There's not the same amount of scholarship. Okay. So within womanist approaches, um, we have fewer scholars who are doing that work, at least as self-identified work that is labeled as womanist. So there aren't as many people, there aren't as many published works, and it's much less than what we have at this point in comparison to feminist approaches. So it's difficult to make generalizations. Okay. That's why there's no particular character who stands out. But having said all of that, I will say there's a new um, work out. It's edited by Gay Byron and Vanessa Lovelace. And that is a little bit, I think, more typical of what people were thinking some of my book might be. So uh, it's Gay Byron and Vanessa Lovelace. Their book is called Womanist Interpretations of the Bible. And it's an edited volume that has a number of different articles by various scholars who are looking at particular texts using a womanist approach. Um, Even so, we're still not at the point that I could say there are certain figures who come up repeatedly. How does this impact you? You're now assistant professor of, of Hebrew Bible at, at Temple. How does this work that you've done in womanist biblical interpretation impact or not impact the work you do every day with your students? How does that enter into the classroom? Mm, I would say in two ways. One, if I'm teaching 
a course. So in the spring, I taught feminist and womanist biblical interpretation, which was a graduate seminar, um, which meant that I was using a lot of my research with my students. Uh, if I'm teaching a course, let's say, Intro to Bible with undergrads, it doesn't affect my work as much. Um, hmm. But I also am less explicit about what I'm doing with my undergrads. So I never, um, for example, my Intro to Bible course is not an intro to the Bible using feminist approaches. Right. But if you looked at my syllabus, you would probably see that there are a lot more women characters we're talking about than one might expect. Um, and if you look at the readings that we're doing in conjunction with biblical texts, you might notice that there are many more um, scholars of color, writers of color, artists of color. I don't talk about that. I just say, this is your reading for Wednesday. Right, right. And, and is there, do you, is that an intentional, uh, is that something you, you thought through as you were approaching this to say, you know, this isn't, um, this is an intentional decision that we're, this is just what the syllabus is and it, it's diverse and that's just that. It's intentional in that I'm very intentional about selecting mm -hmm. diverse perspectives and diverse sources. And also, I, I like to put into conversation ancient texts and more contemporary um, either engagements with texts or things that students might think are totally unrelated um, mm -hmm. and talk about how they work together or don't. But with the students themselves, I think sometimes, even in 2017, students might expect um, a more explicit discussion of feminism and womanism if we were doing a course in women and gender studies. Mm -hmm. Or if it were an advanced elective where the word feminist was in the title. Mm -hmm. But if it's just a general intro to Bible, uh, I think some students might be a little concerned about what they were getting into, maybe a little defensive. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't make a big deal of it. I simply say, this is this is the assigned reading, mm -hmm. and we're reading this in conjunction with this James Baldwin short story. Right, but right. I, I there's no big run up to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you know, I'm just sitting here thinking, I, I maybe maybe you can help. Maybe you know you you have more knowledge about this, but keep coming back to this idea of you know, no theology is without an adjective, and so that deprivileging of kind of the white Eurocentric theological interpretation where it doesn't have an adjective, that's just, that's just biblical interpretation. You know? um, there's womanist biblical interpretation. There's all these other feminist or uh, maybe, I don't know, Asian American or different things. But when we're just doing theology, um, you know, we're assuming this white male Eurocentric understanding. Is there a term or maybe we should make up a term for we can give that interpretation an adjective because it feels like there should be. Do you know, is there a conversation around that where this deprivileging happens where we, um, you know, like you said, you kind of just built the diversity in to an introduction to, to biblical studies or uh, biblical interpretation. 
Um, but is that ever a topic, at least maybe among your colleagues or at an SBL or, or a conference where we're talking about ways to deprivilege a certain uh, privileging of ways of talking about the Bible that came from one particular perspective? I'm not aware of particular conversations, but I think we see it happen, mm -hmm. especially at the SBL Society of Biblical Literature annual meeting. Um, so uh, those of us who attend the sections that are often hyphenated, African-American, Asian-American, whatever, whatever, mm -hmm. um, usually it is primarily scholars of color who are at those sessions. If you go to a session on, let's say, plain vanilla Pentateuch, they don't call it that. They just say. <laughs> they should. Play, maybe but, that should be, you're giving me an idea here. Not but just regular Pentateuch. <laughs> regular. Normal. Um, there, there will be lots of the, the tweed and the blue blazers and, and white guys and khakis. Mm -hmm. So I, I think we see some of that happening. Um, we see it happening in the field in terms of job announcements. If there's a job in theology, in some way it will be communicated that it's plain theology, unmarked, um, traditional or classic or some, in some way there'll be an indication that we just mean regular. And then if the position is for not regular, then there will be some mention of um, for example, you might see the phrase feminist, womanist, mujerista, mm -hmm. all in a row, which are somewhat related but very different things mm -hmm. that you wouldn't necessarily expect one person to be doing all of those. Um, so I, I think there are ways in which the field communicates those differences, even if there isn't a name for the unmarked mm -hmm theology or biblical studies. Do you see that's that's great. Do you see that same what you're just talking about there, the things that you kind of see within the field. Do you see that getting passed down into churches um, as well? And maybe what ways might that manifest in in local congregations if it's happening in places where pastors and ministers are being trained? I would guess there would be some effect in congregations. I think it really depends on where you were trained, where you did your MDiv and the, and the kinds of thinkers that you were engaging with. Um, I've, I'm very active on Twitter. And one of the things that I see with a lot of um, folks is a lot of engagement with kind of evangelical, um, I don't want to say scholarship, popular books on clergy, clergy leadership, um, five ways you can be more like King David kind of <laughs> yeah, yeah. things. That's a good way to describe that. Yeah. Um, things I, I tend to only see in the airport bookstore, but um, such work seems to be pretty popular with a certain segment of clergy. So um, when I talk to people and kind of assume, as you mentioned, uh, Dolores Williams, who's an African-American woman theologian who's written Sisters in the Wilderness, which is a classic work in theology. I I'm surprised when I run into people with MDivs who 
haven't read Dolores Williams. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it matters where you study with whom, what, what was on the syllabi that you had and, and how you continue to engage that work. Yeah, I could talk for hours about what I wasn't taught in my MDiv <laughs> years, believe me. Um, you know, Nisha, something I, I, I want to get to, and I hope it's okay, uh, you're working on a book right? You're under contract, at least. I know under contract means you haven't started. (laughs) That's what it means for me. But anyway, uh, with Oxford University Press, the title is Hagar and Blackness. And I guess one question I have is, um, I'd love to know what that's about. And also, is this an exercise in womanist biblical interpretation? All good questions. So, Uh, yes, in, in this instance, I do, I have turned in the manuscript for the Hagar book. Um, currently it's called Reimagining Hagar, Blackness and Bible. Okay. And, um, you might think that this would be the follow-up to an introduction to womanist. I would think that, yes, but. (laughs) But no. (laughs) (laughs) You're a crafty thing there. Well, I'm just. I'm just letting you know up front. That's not what it is. So, um, I, as I said, I don't identify as womanist. I was interested in the material and wanted to talk about these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but the second book is not a womanist reading of Hagar. For that, I will say, uh, Will Gaffney, who's yeah. a black woman in biblical studies, has a new book out called Womanist Midrash. Oh. And she looks at a number of different um, biblical characters from what she's calling a womanist midrash. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can maybe look there. But anyway, my book on Hagar is looking at how Hagar has been appropriated and interpreted as a black woman. Oh. So within the biblical text, Hagar appears in Genesis 16 and 21 primarily. Um, Again, depending on where you went to seminary, you may or may not have studied those texts. Mm -hmm. You probably talked about Abraham, maybe a little bit about Sarah, maybe or maybe not Mm -hmm. Hagar. So uh, in the text, Hagar is wife of Abram and then Abraham, and she is forced to have a child with Abraham and that child is Ishmael. So for those who remember, Abraham and Sarah have Isaac and Abraham and Hagar have Ishmael. Uh, Long story short, Sarah um, demands that Abraham kick Hagar and Ishmael out of the house. And um, due to her experiences as an enslaved woman, as an Egyptian woman, and as an outcast woman, there are various interpreters over time who have looked at Hagar as a black woman. That is not in the text. So she Mm -hmm. is Egyptian, Mm -hmm. um, but there's nothing in the text that indicates what we might think of as sort of modern categories of race. So I was curious about Given that in, again, plain vanilla biblical interpretation, um, most characters are thought of as white. 
So when we're thinking about um, Western interpretations of biblical texts, usually people are thinking of them as um, lily-white Europeans mm -hmm. along the lines of European sculpture and painting. Right. So if that's the case, then how was it that this particular character came to be understood in some reading communities as a black woman. So that was the impetus for that book. And it is, in my opinion, uh, in mostly I would say it is unrelated to my first book, mm -hmm. except that I would say, yes, it is concerned with um, issues of race, ethnicity, gender, and how African-Americans in particular are reading texts. So it's sort of a history of interpretation, at least of recent interpretation of this story. Right. It's sort of a, it's a reception history yeah. kind of work. Right. Um, and it, it's, it makes sense in my mind as I think about my own research and research agenda, but it's not part two of the first book. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Well, we are coming toward the end of our time, Aisha, and um, just want to see if there's anything you're currently working on other than this, and maybe you can revisit the title of this this uh, book you just finished up, you said to send the manuscript in and give us a general time frame of when that might be released and anything else you're working on and, and where can people find you to learn more about you and the work you're doing? Sure. So the first book is an introduction to womanist biblical interpretation that's out now and it's published with Westminster John Knox. You can find it anywhere you buy books, Amazon or WJK. Um, the second project that I'm working on is not out yet. Academic publishing is funny, so we'll mm -hmm. see when it will appear. Maybe <laughs> oh, it's hilarious! Yes, <laughs> mm. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is currently called "Reimagining Hagar: Blackness and Bible," but um, I haven't talked with them specifically about whether or not they're okay with that. So. Well, you can reference this and say, hey, the cat's out of the bag. I referenced it on a podcast. And right. That's, that's what I'm calling it. That's your leverage. <laughs> you can find me at my website, NyshaJr.com. It's N-Y-A-S-H-A-J-U-N-I-O-R.com. And that has all my contact information, email, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And I am nearly always on Twitter. <laughs> And I'm at Nisha Jr. Excellent. That's well, great. thank you very much for uh, sharing this with us. And it, maybe I would maybe as we as we leave here, just uh, a word of advice for our listeners who are are new to this idea of womanist black interpretation. And, and as you said, a lot of your work is kind of this reception history of that. But anything that you'd want to leave um, for our listeners to think about or to ponder or to to step toward. Um, I would say if you hear someone say womanist, ask what they mean. Don't assume that you know, and don't assume that any black woman you come across mm -hmm. identifies herself that way. Mm -hmm. Good. Good advice. 
Well, thanks again for uh, joining us on the podcast and uh, we'll check out the book and hope others do as well. And uh, we'll be looking out for it, I guess. Yes, thank you, Nisha. We learned much. I appreciate you being here with us. Thank you. Thanks very much. See ya. Well, thanks again, people, for listening to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Uh, Make sure to check out Nisha Jr.'s book, An Introduction to Womanist Biblical Interpretation, and her next book, whatever it's going to be called, and whenever it's going to come out, these academic publishers, who do they think they are? Anyway, it'll be out there sooner or later. Remember, you can find Nisha also, let's say mainly on Twitter, because that'll take you to everything else. Uh, that's at Nisha Jr., and her name is spelled N-Y-A-S-H-A Jr. And, um, yeah. yeah, what else we got here, Jared? Well, I uh, just wanted to highlight, again, uh, an opportunity to spend a little more time with Pete and I. So if this these episodes just feel way too short, you can't get enough of Pete and Jared. If you're Jared. codependent on Pete and Jared, <laughs> uh, then, we are on then you. you should probably see a counselor. But if you're not codependent... If you can't afford that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah if you want to feed Patreon. that. Uh, so we have a page on Patreon, patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people. Two things just want to highlight today about that. One is we have quarterly hangouts. Um, That really will probably be more uh, laid back. We'll be talking about things like baseball. We'll be talking about things that we like and enjoy. We'll also talk about the Bible because those uh, that is something we do enjoy, mm-hmm. so we can't get away from that. But check that out, and also a monthly book study. So we're going to be curating a list of books that we found helpful and influential, or maybe just new books that we want to read with a group of people. That's limited to eight people in a group, and uh, Pete and I will be leading those discussions. We'll be sending out um, what we would find kind of like the curriculum, although mm-hmm. just chapters of the book that we'll read. And then we'll get together with seven other people online and talk about it. Mm-hmm. So Virtual check, check that out on patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people. And as always, you can find me at the Bible for normal people or pdens.com. And speaking of hanging out, I like hanging out with people live too. And if you want to book me for an event, I'm always eager to connect with uh, kindred spirits and discuss things over a day or two and things like that. And you can also find information there about the books that I'm writing and uh, maybe even a little bit about the book that I'm working on now, but I can't tell you what it's about. Or I'd have to kill you. How's that? That's um, that's a ominous, that's ominous way to end. What a horrible way to end. Okay, uh, say something. Let's positive. back up. Um, I won't have to kill you. <laughs> I just don't know what it's. I can't. If you don't have a tweet length description of your book, actually, I do. You can't you know, even you put it out. I think I can. I think I can say it now. Uh, here, here's what the book is about. The Bible challenges our conventional thinking more than we think it does. If you pay attention to the Bible carefully, it actually challenges how you think about God and Jesus and the Bible and faith. So I'm going to be looking at some of those passages that have challenged me to rethink things that I felt were long, uh, long held to be true and actually move to, I think, a bigger and better place. That's a long tweet. It is. I think you went way over 140 characters. And I'm not going to kill you. Yeah, we'll, we'll put it to the editor. Good, okay, perfect. All right, we'll see you next time.